This is Paul Adamson and I'm in conversation with Professor Jonathan Portis. Jonathan Portis is a senior fellow at the UK in a Changing Europe project and is an knowledge expert on immigration. Jonathan, I want to talk about obviously immigration in the context of Brexit, both the referendum last year and what's happening now as we start the Article 50 negotiations. And as you know better than I do, the charge sheet against EU immigration is the following. Um, one is that the EU citizens are taking British jobs. Two, that they are acting a downward pressure on, on wages. Three, that they are accessing benefits to which they have not con- contributed. And finally, that they are using up precious and scarce public services such as schools and, and housing. Let's go through them one by one. So are EU27 immigrants taking British jobs? Um, briefly, no. Um, or perhaps briefly, yes. It depends which way you look at it. Clearly, they are taking British jobs in the sense that um, if you advertise a job and you give it to a European immigrant as opposed to a British person, then there's a British person who has had their job taken from them. But from another perspective, of course, um, it's not quite so simple. You have Im- immigrants um, don't just add to labour supply, they also add to demand, they spend money, um, they grow, uh, help the economy grow. And what the evidence shows quite clearly and indeed rather surprisingly to many of us labour economists is that uh, this effects are almost one for one. So for every job a European takes uh, or an immigrant takes in the UK, another job is created. Um, so overall, uh, uh, the impact on the, empl- although they may well take British jobs, the impact on the employment prospects of British natives is basically zero. Um, and indeed, you can see that the fact that the UK has the highest employment rate and in the lowest unemployment rate in, uh, um, in recent decades, despite the fact that we've had very high levels of immigration for the past uh, uh, 15 years or so. OK, and downward pressure on wages, do they deflate? Um, uh, again, the evidence here is that on average uh, um, there there's not much impact, but there may be some somewhat greater impact at the lower end of the wage scale. I think there is a reasonably degree consistent evidence um, and it's consistent with one might one might think, which is that the very large influx of uh, EU migrants, particularly uh, in low uh, paid occupations, has had someone downward pressure on wages. But these effects are, given the magnitude of the, no- the number of people who come, these effects are actually remarkably small. Um, we're talking about maybe a 1% downward pressure on wages over the past decade or so. That is not really a big deal. It's a pretty small beer compared to all the other things that determine how big wages are. So there probably is some impact, but it's, it's not actually that large. And the third charge, the EU immigrants coming into the United Kingdom and accessing benefits to which they have not contributed. Um, well, EU immigrants do access uh, 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 benefits, but it's not quite clear what not contributed means. We have some contributory benefits, like uh, um, you know the contributory job seekers allowance and EU immigrants are entitled to them if and only if they've contributed just like British people. Um, the more relevantly perhaps is is that EU migrants are, are eligible to uh, um, access tax credits for which you don't have to have made any contribution but then the same is true of British people. That's the whole point. That's why EU migrants are allowed to access tax credits because the condition of getting them is that you should be working in the UK. Um, so the rules are no different for for. Europeans or uh, than they are for uh, for British people. And then finally, maybe the most difficult charge to bat away, um, that EU immigrants uh, coming into the United Kingdom uh, in, a, in the context of you know, pressure on housing, schools and health services, uh, we, can, uh, we can do without that kind of additional pressure. Um, well, again, obviously, um, migrants are people and uh, uh, they consume services. So uh, um, 
uh, EU migrants um, do indeed use the health service. They do indeed send their kids to our schools um, uh, um, and uh, they do indeed occupy houses. Um, but from the point of view of public services, what matters is the overall balance sheet because we finance those services out of tax revenue. Um, and the evidence here is pretty clear that migration in general, but EU migration in particular, is positive for public services. So yes, they um, are a drain on our public services, but they more than outweigh that through the tax revenues they pay. So to the extent that public services in Britain uh, um, have come under pressure over the last uh, uh, five or ten years, it really is not the result of immigration. Things would be worse if we'd had lower immigration. It's because uh, um, the government has, for entirely separate reasons, uh, had to or chosen to restrict the amount of money going to public services. Where I think there is a more legitimate level of concern about immigration is on housing. Uh, um, that there is no doubt that immigration, along with population growth in general, puts pressure, upward pressure on housing demand and hence on house prices and rentals. Now, you could blame that on the dysfunctional nature of the British housing market, and I certainly would, but uh, that all other things being equal, does more immigration mean more pressure on the housing market? Absolutely. Well, the reasons for the Brexit vote last June were many, I'm sure, and people had different reasons for voting the way they did. But I think arguably that the single biggest reason appears to be immigration. Are you surprised, I mean, uh, that, that it seems to be the most uh, uh, strong reason why people voted to Brexit? Well, um, I think, you know, in a sense, um, you know, the, the slogan of the Vote Leave campaign was Vote Leave, Take Control. And for a lot of things... That was a pretty silly thing because we have control over lots of uh, you know, we have control over our schools, our health service, over lots of things. The one the the area where it really resonated, um, because it's true, was with respect to European migration because it's quite true that as a member of the European Union, free movement, you do not have control. So uh, um, I think they they you know uh, uh, if for whatever reason, and we just discussed reasons why some of these concerns are not, but if you are concerned about European migration, then uh, then that slogan, vote leave, take control, really resonated and was meaningful. So I think it's perhaps not surprising that it was one of the central elements in the leave victory. Uh, but it seems to be quite an important point because Theresa May, the British Prime Minister, is clearly at least uh, claiming that one of the reasons why the UK, in part of its Article 50 negotiations, has to leave both the single market and the, and the customs union is because... We can't have that with as well as free movement. Do you see uh, any weakness in her argument and any sign that she will change her mind on that? Um, on the latter, no. No sign at all that she will change her mind. Um, and I think given the stated position of the European Union, which, to be fair, is, is sort of follows directly from the Treaty of Rome, uh, that freedom of movement is one of the four freedoms, um, uh, and that the an integral part of the single market is not just that you have to have uh, freedom of movement to be in the single market. It's the freedom of movement is actually part of the single market. Uh, these positions, you know, given given where we are, given the legal and political structures of the EU and the way it, it works, and given where British politics is, um, you know, this this is perhaps. Uh, there is perhaps no way out of this particular cul-de-sac, at least at the moment. As I said earlier, I mean, I think we have pretty good evidence that that uh, um, immigration doesn't have any impact one way or the other on the employment prospects of British workers. So I don't think reducing immigration will necessarily increase unemployment. Of course, in increasing unemployment will reduce immigration. Um, and that perhaps is the flip side of this, uh, uh, you know, perhaps illustrated most uh, uh, um, 
bizarrely by something the UK Home Secretary said, said last week, Amber Rudd, when we had uh, some new immigration statistics which showed that immigration had fallen significantly, especially immigration from the EU, she said, well, this, this is good news, which shows that we're making progress in getting immigration down. But of course, that wasn't anything to do with policy. We haven't left the EU yet. Nothing had changed in terms of immigration. What she was essentially saying was that the fact that um, both Britons and Europeans found the UK a less attractive place to work, to live, to raise a family, to start a business or whatever, was good news. And that's sort of the, the looking glass world we're in, we're in at the moment. Well, you've written elsewhere and uh, to the effect that politicians should not be allowed to get away with saying that they want to reduce low-skilled migration while still attracting, quote-unquote, the best and the brightest. Can you explain that a bit more? Well, I think there's this sort of slightly bizarre view in the UK that, uh, um, you know, advanced by some in government and on the leave side, that it wasn't immigration we were against, it was just too much low-skilled immigration, and, we, and, and that was because of free movement. Free movement meant we had to le let everybody in, and that after uh, we end free movement, we'll still be able to get precisely the same high-skilled immigrants we want, but none of the, the low-skilled ones. And that I think that falls down on, on several counts. Um, first of all... Uh, um, the fact is that actually, of course, most migrants to the UK, whether they're from Europe or elsewhere, um, um, like most Brits, don't work either in very high-skilled or very low-skilled jobs. They work in medium-skilled jobs, that is, jobs which are not perhaps you know, university professors or bankers, but equally are not necessarily uh, um, agricultural labourers. They're jobs which do require skills, qualifications, and, and so on. Um, so we have not yet addressed the question of whether we're going to continue to uh, um, want such migrants in those occupations. If we do, then uh, um, then we won't reduce immigration by that much, or whether we're not going to want them, in which case we'll have the, the very serious economic effects that go much beyond the ending of low-skilled migration. Um, but the second and more important point is that, you know, the, 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 is, is the idea that you can somehow centrally plan the immigration system in the labour market, and we can choose exactly who we want. That's not how immigration systems work, and it's not how, how people work. Um, we can only get the migrants who choose to come here. And the idea that ending free movement, which means not just uh, saying uh, that uh, uh, low-skilled people come here, but we'll say that everybody who wants to come to the UK will have to qualify in some way, will have to get a visa, a work visa, will have to get a work permit, will not have the rights and privileges that European citizens currently have in the UK. The idea that that is not going to reduce skilled migration uh, um, is a fantasy, and we're already seeing it. We've already seen a significant fall in the number of Nurses, for example, uh, from the EU choosing to register in the UK. We've got some evidence uh, uh, so far anecdotal that it's harder for universities to recruit academics and so on from the EU. So I don't think there's any doubt that uh, uh, that we will start losing skill. Uh, the consequence of ending free movement will be that we will lose skilled people as well as, uh, as people at the lower end of the labour market. Well, let's talk briefly then about the, the other side, maybe, of, the, of this uh, debate, uh, Jonathan, the E27 and their negotiation with the UK in context of Article 50 negotiations. Um, the, the EU is quite adamant, as you know better than I do, that the, the four freedoms of which free movement of, of people is one, of course, are indivisible and they're unt untouchable. Uh, but I think I'm right in saying that free movement is a, is a founding principle but not an unconditional right. Do you think, Germany? Uh, sympathy for the argument that maybe on the EU27 side they're being rather too dogmatic or they're just sticking to what the, their, their true principles are? Um, well, I think, uh, you know, from an economic point of view, you can make a perfectly respectable argument that uh, 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 that you could have 
some of the elements of the single market without all all others. Uh, um, that that uh, um, and and that there you could have an economic arrangement between the UK and the uh, um, the remaining EU um, that. Uh, did not involve free movement, but did have a very close degree of economic integration, including some degree of regulatory equivalence, conversion trade and services, and so on. I think from the EU point of view, that is a political red line more than an economic red line. From an economic point of view, uh, um, it seems to me that, that uh, uh, what is really indivisible is free movement in a monetary union. I do not see how you can have a, a functioning Eurozone without free movement. But since the UK has already been given an opt-out of the Eurozone, I think uh, uh, you could, at least uh, in, from an economic point of view, uh, you could have imagined solutions that, that would have limited free movement and still preserved uh, uh, some other elements of, of the UK's membership of the single market. I don't think... You know the, the the EU's view is much more political and 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 and, and legalistic, and I think that um, I mean I think you, and you see that reflected in just the way that we talk about uh, uh, free movement and immigration in Brussels and London. In the UK, um, people talk about immigrants and immigration, and sometimes about EU migration and non-EU migration, but it's all about immigrants. In here. People talk about immigrant when people talk about in Brussels. People talk about immigrants many people from outside the EU, whereas we talk about free movement and labour mobility. So it's a sort of just just as people in London don't talk about uh, people who come from London to Scotland uh, uh, as being immigrants. They're just people who are choosing to move within the UK, <laughs> uh, despite the fact that in some sense the economic aspects of that uh, that movement are are, are similar, right? Yeah. Uh, so it is a more a sort of polit. It's you know, a lot of this is is about politics, about conceptions of national identity, conceptions of where the borders are between uh, 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 where you draw the borderline around uh, uh, around things, rather than about the economics. And also, if I'm not mistaken, uh, at the EU level, um, there is legislation in place where there's uh, agency workers directive and other things, which actually try and set you know a level playing field, as it were. And the, and also, the European Court of Justice, in its more recent judgments, has been much more sensitive to this concern that people have about you know uncontrolled, should we say, yeah. free movement. Does, is there any scope for a more kind of uh, strict application of the of the EU-wide legislation to to address this debate? Um, I think within the within the EU 27, there is, and, you know, the EU law, including law and free movement, is always evolving, and uh, um, there will no doubt be changes to things like the agency workers directive and the posted workers directive in future. There may be some further restrictions on benefit, uh, the ability to go to other countries and claim benefits. Um, uh, I think there is a misconception, though, in the in the UK that actually the fundamental principles of, of free movement are in some way in question within the U27. That doesn't appear to me to be the case. Uh, you know, it will be changes around the edges within the, 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 the broad uh, uh, concept of free movement, whereas the UK debate is now in a completely different place. OK, well, one final question. We're almost a year since the 23rd of June mm -hmm. vote last year. And, of course, negotiations have yet to start yeah. formally, though obviously quite a lot of preparation, preparation is taking place behind the scenes. To ask a maybe a totally impossible question, but just to finish off, what is your prognostic for how the negotiations uh, will be held and what kind of what kind of climate and what uh, and how hopeful are you, optimistic are you for a, a relatively uh, sensible outcome? Um, I think what happens in the next few months is really, really important. Um, assuming that the Conservatives win the, the UK election, uh, the Brexit negotiations will begin on the 19th of June. Um, will the UK... Uh, representative uh, come back and say, right, okay, we have a mandate from the British people to negotiate Brexit. 
Um, we are going to be constructive. We're going to make some compromises. We're going to give some ground on some issues, in particular the rights of EU citizens resident in the UK now um, and the exit bill. Um, and equally, we expect you on the EU27 side to negotiate constructively to make some compromises, um, but recognizing that a, a, a sensible outcome to this is in everybody's interests. Um, if that's the case, then you know, that will get the negotiations off onto a good start and that could give a sense of momentum that this is actually going in the right direction. But it would require the UK government on its side to face down some of the more extreme elements in its own party and perhaps even more difficult, the tabloid press, uh, the right-wing press in, 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 in London. Um, equally, it will require the Commission to take a, a perhaps less legalistic uh, approach than it, it has done so far. Um, so that's the optimistic scenario. The pessimistic scenario is actually that the UK comes in, says we want to talk about this, and here's our and and the EU27 and the Commission simply say, well, that's not within the negotiating mandate. Come back when you're ready to be serious. In that case, we could very quickly see these talks heading for a breakdown, um, and that would be quite disastrous from the point of view of the UK, um, and not very good from the point of view of the EU27. Uh, which of those scenarios will will take, happen? I genuinely don't know. Okay, on that note, we have to leave it. Jonathan Porters, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.